This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read this morning from Isaiah chapter 59, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 59. Many of, the, many of the verses we read in Isaiah 59 should remind you of Paul's epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 3. And remember, that's the first section in Romans that is the first section or based upon It's according to the same first section of the Heidelberg Catechism on our sins and miseries. Isaiah 59 expounds on the same thing, our sins and miseries, and then leads us to the one Redeemer. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. The act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before Thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. 
Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 5. <clears throat> Lord's Day 5, based upon the Scriptures, part of which we have read this morning, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 5, where we find a transition from the first section of our misery to the second section on our deliverance. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have His justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed, and further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. And finally, what sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures that is, one who is also very God. <clears throat> Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Heidelberg Catechism, here in Lord's Days 5 and 6, slows us down. We find in Lord's Days 5 and 6 a slow transition from the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism on how great our sins and miseries are unto the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism on how we may be delivered from our sins and miseries. So I exhort you at the beginning that we who tend to have in our fast-paced culture filled with information that shoots at us constantly to stimulate our brains with a large quantity of information all at once that we, along with the catechism, slow down and consider patiently this slow transition for it is beneficial. Having considered Lord's Day 2, the fat 
of our misery, that we are totally depraved by nature, prone to hate God and our neighbor. Having considered, Lord's Day 3, the fault of that misery, that is, not God's, but man's, Adam's, the best answer, mine. And having considered, Lord's Day 4, about the fiery judgment of God against us for our sin. Eternal punishment to both soul and body. The Catechism now asks, is there no way of escape? That's the key phrase found in Lord's Day 5 in question 12. Is there no way by which we may escape and be again received into favor? The main point of Lord's Day 5 is that there is no way. There is no way. Dot, dot, dot. That's the point. And notice that only when we get to Lord's Day 6 and question and answer 18, only then does the catechism speak explicitly of the mediator and says the name Jesus Christ as the one and only way of escape. The catechism slows us down in Lord's Day 5. As it were, it makes us keep one foot yet. One foot yet in the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism on our misery. It says, don't, don't you forget that misery. Keep your foot there as we transition forward toward, toward the one and only Deliverer. Although the human mind might want to move forward, we might say, we're called to stay for yet a little while and understand there is no way, there is no other option for escape. <clears throat> Children, what we find in, in Lord's Day 5 is something similar. It can be compared to something similar that you find on a test that you take at school. Sometimes in a test, your teacher might include what is called a multiple choice question. And if you're certain about the right answer to that multiple choice question, you might answer that question in this way. You might quickly skim all the answers and immediately go to the right answer, the correct answer, because you know it already. You don't need all the choices and options there. And so without paying much attention to the wrong options, you just mark the correct one. But there is, as you know, another way to answer a multiple choice question, a more careful way. And perhaps if you're careful having marked the correct answer, then you check your answer. And this is how you check your answer. You go through a process called the process of elimination. You go through each of the wrong answers and you think carefully about why they must be wrong. And in understanding all the wrong answers, that confirms to you that the only one left that you have marked is the correct answer. And so you can think of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 5 doing that. That second process, the process of elimination, although it's far more serious than answering one multiple choice question on a test. Is there no way we can be delivered? Is there any other way? A different answer, a different option, and we go through A, no. B, no. C, no. D, no. And Lord's Day 5 is saying to us, like we might find on a multiple choice question and answer, it's none of the above. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no way to escape. What the catechism does in Lord's Day 5 is what Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah 59. He does the same thing. 
He is speaking of God as one who wants to save His people. But when He looks down from heaven and examines all the creatures, is there anyone, He asks, that can save? Is there anyone that can be the intercessor or mediator for mankind? Verse 16. All the verses beforehand talk about the option, so to speak. And He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor or mediator and Savior. Isaiah wrote to the church of the Old Testament in, in bondage of the Babylonian captivity. He speaks to them in verse 2 of how their sins or iniquities have separated between God and man. Their sins have hid His face from them. He will not hear them. And the spatial separation between Israel, now in Babylon, from the temple in Jerusalem, was a representation of the separation between God and them because of their sin. And that separation is not an empty gap, but it's a breach filled with fire. From God that they were separated from came judgment. Pictured in the Babylonian captivity. Fiery judgment. And Isaiah leads the people of God, now suffering under the Babylonian captivity, to consider, consider, slow down. Is there any way of escape? No. Therefore, verse 16 continues, His arm brought salvation. Unto him. No way of escape. That's the theme of this morning's sermon. First, the necessary satisfaction. Second, the deficient options. And then finally, the one and only deliverer. <clears throat> In order to escape the judgment of God that you deserve. And I deserve for my sins and for your sins. There must be what is called satisfaction. The satisfaction of God's justice. That's the key word in Lord's Day 5. You find it twice in answer 12. Notice, God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this not partial, but full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. And the truth of satisfaction is not a complex idea. Children, you can understand that big word. Satisfaction simply means to do enough or to be enough. And so you might commonly use that word when you are eating. Maybe after you have eaten this afternoon at the diner, dinner, dining table, you might eat and having eaten enough, filled your belly enough so that you're not overstuffed, but you, you have enough. You feel full. You say to your mom, to your dad, I am satisfied. I'm satisfied. Because enough has been placed in me. Enough food. But here, of course, when we're at the dinner table, we're not talking about we're talking about the satisfaction of your belly, but we're not talking about the satisfaction which the catechism is talking about, the satisfaction of God's justice. We're not talking about doing enough to fill your belly, but we're talking about doing enough to make God's just wrath stop burning against us. And so we bring ourselves to the familiar symbol of God's justice. We enter into God's courtroom, and we think upon a courtroom, the symbol in that courtroom would be the symbol of scales or a balance which we have already considered. We brought up last week. When a criminal in the courtroom is found to be guilty, the judge declares what is called a verdict, either guilty or not guilty, and since that criminal is found to be guilty, his verdict is guilty, as charged. But then comes after that verdict a sentence. The sentence is 
the punishment that fits the crime. The judge determines the amount of punishment that is enough. Enough to satisfy justice against his sins. And so if you were to look at the balance and think about the balance or the scales, on one side of the scale would be placed the crime. And the judge might think as he considers the crime of murder, let's say. A million dollar fine? No, that wouldn't be enough. Life in prison? No, that would not be enough. Death. The death penalty. That would be enough, an earthly judge might think. Enough to satisfy justice and the scales of that balance are equal. Now let's remember that we are not in, a, in an earthly courtroom, but we are in God's courtroom. And He is not only the judge, but He is the one against whom every sin is committed. Every crime is against Him. And we have committed millions of crimes with our original and actual sins. And against this most high majesty of God, this judge, we have committed the I hate you's. Remember, of sin, murderous thoughts, words, and actions. What's enough punishment? If we put all of our sins on that one side of the scale in God's courtroom, what's enough to satisfy God's justice so that that scale is balanced? So that God says, that's enough. I'm fully satisfied. Finished. I remind you what we considered last Sunday, what needs to be placed on the other side of the scale, because sin is committed against the most high majesty of God, is temporal and eternal punishment. Isaiah 59.18 expresses it well. Isaiah 59.18 that we read, according to their deeds, accordingly, Emphasizing his justice. He will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands, he will repay recompense, he emphasizes. Every human being, whether in the church or out there in the world on islands far away, heat, fever, rage, hell, eternally as a just recompense. That is what must be placed not only on the other side of the scale, but upon the soul and body of every sinner. That again, is not due to God's meanness or cruelty. It's due to God's holiness and justice, His goodness. Man loves to pull the victim card. Each one of us does. Claim to be the victim of God even. And he would be so cruel against us. But we are the perpetrators we are the haters with our sin. We deserve this just recompense. The Catechism establishes that, reminds us of that in the question of Lord's Day 5. The first question, what must be done? The Catechism asks, is there no way? And the answer The justice of God requires that the same human nature, God will have His justice satisfied. And we must make this full satisfaction, notice the quote now, either by ourselves or by another. The catechism gives us two categories. You can picture two columns of options. The first column being ourselves making this satisfaction or someone else, another, making this satisfaction. What if I, myself, were to do something enough? 
Can I, the catechism leads us to ask, satisfy God's justice and, and balance the scales? And the second option, or the second category, what about someone else in my place? And intellectually, you know the answer. I know the answer. No. But the old man would like to come up with a different option. The old man would like to invent something else, someone else, besides Jesus. Something that would displace him just a little. That can make his satisfaction of God's justice just a little less so that man can somehow claim that I had some part in satisfying God's justice and gaining escape for myself. And so we must slow down with the catechism and address the deficient options so that we conclude against that old man. No, there's not one. Let's start with you, yourself. Can I do enough? Can you do enough to satisfy God's justice? Can we ourselves make this satisfaction? And the first thing that man often considers when he wonders whether I can make this satisfaction is, can my, can my good work, just maybe one work or one activity satisfy? Maybe, man thinks, maybe I can make up for my sins. Sometimes we do that peer to peer, human to human. I'm going to make up for what I did against you when we do something good. So can we do that with God? Can I, having sinned, having done wrong, can I do something good to help outweigh the bad? And man draws in his own mind the set of scales, sins on one side and good deeds on the other side. Does that help, at least help, a little balance justice? I pray a lot. I pay my budget. Even more, I put more in the offering plate. I have, I have remained in the Protestant Reformed Church. Others have not. I work hard at, at school. I get good grades. I earn an honest income. Put my time in working. Not only on the job, but in the home and in the church. I'm an office bearer. I've made good sermons. I've listened to sermons well. Yes, it's imperfect, but I've been a good mother or a good husband and a father. I have held to confessional standards and doctrines. I do my devotions. I'm not an abuser. We're drunk or an adulterer. Won't God take some of those good works? Won't God take some of those good doctrines that I hold to and place it on that, that other side of the scale? And, and, and can that in some way outweigh, help balance, and make the eternal wrath of God at least less severe. And the catechism's answer is, by no means, no. And this might seem to belabor the point, but here is for your application. The Reformed person might ask, but what about my spirit-wrought good works? which God has worked in me both to will and to do. Can that be placed on the other side of the scale and satisfy God's justice slightly? 
Or even this, how about my repentance, my genuine sorrow for sin, my turning? What if I plead guilty? That would be repentance. How about my faith? My trust in God. Can that trust, which the Spirit works in me both to will and to act, can that be placed on the other side of the scale to help help with satisfying God's justice? Let's lessen my sentence a little. And the answer is still, by no means. Why not? The Catechism explains. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. And the further explanation, as you know, is that every good work and even repentance and faith, which are not works, but even repentance and faith is tainted with sin. And for every sin-tainted good act of man, we deserve more punishment. We daily increase our debt. We know the familiar passage that Isaiah has which proves that point. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, even our good works, are as filthy rags. Meaning, try to satisfy God with our Good works, they are as filthy rags. And filthy rags there, you should know, is a striking illustration referring to menstrual cloths dirtied by a woman. But Isaiah 59 verse 6 has another way to describe good works which men always seek to attempt to use. To satisfy God, or another way to put it, to cover their sin. Verse 6. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Children, this is such a striking illustration. You can understand this. Isaiah pictures mankind as spiders. Those arachnids spinning beautiful, glistening webs you might see in the spring or maybe in the corner of your house sometimes. Those webs, Isaiah says, is a picture of our works, our good works. And children, imagine this. Waking up Sunday morning and instead of putting on your Sunday clothes, covering yourself instead with a spider web you found and coming before the Holy God and saying, does this satisfy you? Imagine even boasting about your spider web clothing before the judgment seat of God. What an offense. It only makes our judgment heavier. Not only is it deficient to cover, it's dangerous. And and that's Isaiah's point in verse 5. The pictures, and there are commentators that have a different view on this, but this is how I see this. Verse 5, the pictures even our good works and, and the false gospel about our good works as snake eggs, cockatrice eggs. And we use our good works to gain something or as a way to satisfy God in the least bit. Our good works are like the eggs of a snake. And I don't know whether you've seen snake eggs, but they're white and smooth. They look nice on the outside. 
Isaiah pictures taking those eggs and eating them. Or clinging to them. And the snake hatching and bringing death. That is the consequence of one who would cling to his works for the satisfaction of God's justice. But some might still object that their good works are somehow able. And young people, we've discussed this before in catechism perhaps. Young people often bring this up in catechism. Why can't the new man's good work? Because the new man can do good works. We know that our good works are tainted with sin when they come forth out of that new man. are tainted with the old man, but why can't, as it were, like a cook separating the, the yolk from the white... Why can't God just take the yoke of our good work which came from our new man and not think about the old man that taints that good work? Why can't that yoke, that new man's work, be somehow a contributing factor? And so we consider that hypothetical. It's not possible, but hypothetically, still they could not. Still the new man's work cannot. Make up for sin. Why? Because good works simply don't belong on that side of the scale, so to speak. Remember, what balances the scale of God's justice? For sin, we deserve punishment, suffering, eternally. And a good work doesn't belong on that side of the scale. A good work, rather, is simply our duty. Which gets no, nothing, merits nothing from God. Luke 17, 10, Jesus says, When you have done all those things which are commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And so if you're thinking, you might ask. Under the category still of man somehow himself satisfying God, what about suffering? What about if I suffer then? In some religions there is something called self-flagellation where man actually thinking that he can suffer for his sins tries to do penance by whipping himself or getting flogged taking pain on himself, bloodying his back. There's a Roman Catholic idea, not only of suffering in this life, but suffering in purgatory after death for a temporary time. And then, having satisfied God, can go to heaven. There were the ascetics of old. The ascetics in church history were those who abstained from food and drink. Some of them sat themselves up on top of a pole for weeks on end, not eating, not drinking, suffering there, thinking that somehow that could satisfy God and His justice. And it's not just theoretical. We might ask, what if we suffer, what if we suffer mockery? Persecution, martyrdom. What if I cut myself? What if I engage in self-harm and I exercise myself till I am suffering? I am torturing my body. Or I eat guilt-free food. Or not eat at all. Can that somehow satisfy God's justice and deliver me? And the answer is the same. By no means. Even our suffering increases death. For it is tainted with our sin. And even if, hypothetically, our suffering was not tainted with sin, and we could make a beginning of suffering, the punishment due us. The suffering must be eternal. 
And the child of God, in considering that option again, says something like this. And not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Even this, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. But thou must save Thou alone. We ourselves cannot. The catechism gives another category. By another, by another, and by another points us away from self properly so, thankfully so. But natural, natural man again would consider other options before turning to God, to Christ. Anyone who is a mere creature, question 14, therefore asks, a mere creature, and someone familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures might ask, what about the Jewish sacrificial system? What about the blood of lambs and goats and bulls and doves? And the child in a Reformed church might even have that honest question. Didn't, didn't the lambs, didn't the lamb? cover the sins of the people when it was brought in the Old Testament? When, when, when their throats were cut and the blood was spilled out and the bodies were burned on the fiery altar of God's wrath, didn't those sacrifices somehow satisfy God's wrath for sin? And Hebrews 9 has the answer. Hebrews 9, verse 3. The writer of Hebrews explains that those sacrifices were a shadow, meaning pictures of that which was to come. But says in verse 3, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. When the people brought those sacrifices and they saw the blood and they saw the fire, it was a reminder to them and pressed upon them what their sins deserved. It pointed them to only one who could do this. But the sacrifices of the animals themselves could not. And the Catechism explains why. First, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. That's the answer of justice. Man has sinned, and thus man must suffer for man's sin. An animal is no man. And the second explanation, the Catechism gives no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. While the first explanation has to do with justice, the second explanation has to do with ability, power. Even if an animal somehow could justly suffer in our place, the punishment we deserve is eternal. An animal is a, is a finite creature that cannot sustain in his body and soul, which he doesn't have a soul. The infinite wrath of God against sin. So that like the, like the cows, the bullocks, which Elijah sacrificed on Mount Carmel, the heat of God's wrath would consume them in an, in an instant and it still would not be enough. It still would not be the satisfaction of God's wrath. Which might bring to our mind then the option of someone greater than an animal. The greatest of creatures that we can imagine are angels. What about an angel? What about Gabriel? What about Michael? Or maybe what about the entire host of angels suffering in our place 
a cooperative effort to endure the infinite wrath of God. They are mighty creatures, but they are not infinite. And so even after they were all burned in the fiery heat for us, it would still not be enough and more. It would not be just, for angels are not men. Man must suffer for man's sin. And so we return to man. Since justice demands that man suffer for man's sin, we might ask as our final option, why not have a man like Barabbas, as Pontius Pilate suggests, Or a man like Moses, which we sang about. Or a woman like St. Mary. Or a prestigious minister or professor that we might imagine to be perfect. And the answer is no. For the holiest of men have only a small beginning. They have their own sin to suffer for. As one of the proof texts listed by the Catechism, we have Ezekiel 18.20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. Meaning every individual must suffer for his own sin. And if he has his own sin, he may not suffer for another. And this is Isaiah's point and examining mankind and all creatures and every option, verse 16, there was no man. God saw. He looked and He saw there was no man. And wondered that there was no intercessor. Because these doctrines and the truths that I have preached to you this morning are familiar we might be listening not so astonished by what we have just heard. And thus I want to point out a word to you in verse 16 that is meant to astonish us. The word wondered. Wondered. God saw and there was no man. And God wondered that there was no intercessor. God was astonished, Isaiah says. And there's a negative connotation to that word, not astonished in a positive sense, but devastated, appalled, horrified that there was no one to save, to intercede. And of course, we know that this is a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism. A figure of speech which applies man's attributes to God in order that we might understand what is going on here. But Isaiah is saying, no, the Holy Spirit is saying through Isaiah to impress this upon mankind. Man's misery is so disturbing. His plight is so great. He is so destitute of a single work and a single bit of suffering to make up for his sin that it can be said of God himself. Astonishing. There's no way. And now, you can stand in awe. 
of the only one. What sort of mediator and deliverer must we seek for? Not in the category of ourselves or another creature. One who is very man, though, perfectly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also very God. But that's impossible. How can man be God? How can God be man? How can man be unblemished with any sin? Perfectly righteous. To help with the astonishment, imagine the angels in the Old Testament. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, which things the angels desire to look into. Imagine those angels who themselves could not satisfy God's justice for man's sin. Imagine those angels congregating in heaven as they considered man's plight and they thought about the promises of God, that God would save His elect people in His covenant mercy. How, those angels asked, how? How can man be saved from that devastation? How can man suffer for man's sin and yet be delivered from that eternal wrath? How can man be perfectly righteous without any spot of sin? How can he be just? A man, and yet at the same time be able to sustain in himself the infinite wrath of God and finish suffering it completely for all the sins of the people. How? They asked. The angels themselves could not comprehend how. They could not invent one. Just as you could not, lest it's revealed to you in God's grace. But that which was impossible with man and with angels, God gave. Verse 16, Therefore His arm brought salvation unto Him, and His righteousness sustained Him. Isaiah is saying, God had to do it. God Himself had to do it. Don't think of Jesus as apart from God. God Himself with His own arm, meaning His own strength, had to do it. God Himself with His own righteousness had to do it. And in that way, Isaiah gives the two qualifications which question the answer 115 shows us. God Himself with His own power, able to sustain God's wrath, had to do it. And one who is perfectly righteous with His own righteousness enough to save, He had to do it. And that it implies, it implies in that text in verse 16 that He had to be a man. But the words brought salvation unto Himself. He saved Himself. His righteousness sustained Himself. And though veiled in the Old Testament, New Testament eyes and New Testament ears can understand this. Illuminated by the Spirit. Who, who is this verse talking about? It is talking about this God, God the Son, the judge, the very judge against whom sin has been committed, the very judge who should bring His wrath against us, this very judge comes off His throne. This very judge comes down off of His judgment seat. This very judge takes on Himself our human nature, our flesh and our blood. This God comes in our human nature with our human body and soul and with His Godhead does sustain in His human body and soul the infinite wrath of God. whose righteousness was spotless, so that He did not have to sustain wrath for His own sin, 
but could for ours. No wonder when that babe lay in the manger and the answer that the angels could not come up with was revealed there. No wonder the angels cried out and all the heavenly hosts, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Because though there was no one that could save, not one, God Himself came to save. And He has come. Verse 20 is a prophecy that He would come. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. He has come. He has paid the price in full. Fully satisfied. God's wrath. So that God said, it is enough. At the same moment when Jesus said, it is enough. Finished on the cross. Who has he done this for? The elect. Unconditionally chosen. Verse 20 describes those elect. Who turn from transgression in Jacob. Because in every elect. He works a turning. A turning away from sin. And not just every sin. But the sin of seeking to find salvation in any other. And so I call you. Turn. Again, repent. And believe. In Jesus Christ alone. Turn from your spider web works. Turn from your snake egg works. Turn from trying to make yourself righteous before God. Turn from mere creatures, mere men, that you seek to use as your representative before God. Turn to Jesus only. Believing in Him, in Him alone as your Savior, perfectly righteous, very God and very man. In Him alone do you find satisfaction. I close with this. Not only a satisfaction of justice, before God's judgment seat now and forever. But true satisfaction for your soul. For the one who has satisfied God's justice says, You are mine. I am yours. And in me is everything. Wisdom. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, glorification, and every blessing. The longing soul is truly satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, turn, turn our hearts. Because naturally so, we feel it in ourselves. We seek satisfaction in so many other things besides Jesus. So turn the heart to Thee alone to rest, to rest in Jesus alone. And speak to our souls that we might know 
that Jesus alone has indeed suffered for me. In that way, feed our hungry and thirsty souls with that gospel that we might be satisfied. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.